What's up, you guys? Welcome to the Life Like a Movie podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to potentially grow and to learn something about the world, yourself, uh, whatever you're here for, I thank you. Now, today we have a very special guest, Benita Summers. When I talked with her, it was a life-changing experience for me, and I'm serious about that. She did something really intense with me during the conversation that sparked some really weird emotions that I had to reflect on later that ended up giving me this little realization about myself. So huge thanks to her. She has a wealth of knowledge that we're about to explore, and I'm just really pumped that you guys are here to listen to it. All right, without further ado, let's get into this incredible conversation with Benita Summers. Um, So can we just start with... Well, I guess, first of all, I should thank you once again uh, for taking the time. It's, you know, I, everyone's busy, so it's very nice you took the time. I really it's appreciate it. Yes. Um, so, I'm so curious. Um, how did you get into this whole racket? You know, how did you... How did you... <laughs> I love that you call it a racket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, born into it, actually. No kidding. Uh, yeah, my grandmother was a medium in England. My mom is psychic. My kids are psychic. No way. Yeah, and, you know, it's kind of like this. Everybody's psychic. It's just oh. it's kind of like some people are born more athletic than others other people can work at it so uh, when I'm working with people I'll often say the more you work with me the less you'll need me because I'll teach you how to be your own psychic mm. it's just our society focuses on intellect you know see hear and deduce rather than feel your way through things so I when you ooh, wow right when yeah. you feel you're connecting with your intuition because your intuition is directly tied to your emotional intelligence mm. you know yes okay so so would you, is there a hierarchy for you? Do you go say like uh, the gut first, like intuition, then heart, then brain, as um, far as like what you follow for decision making? It's, it's really more um, of a lateral move in that um, when I need to know, say I get invited to something, I will check in, how does it feel in my body mm. to say yes? And it mm. might be emotional, it might be a feeling like that doesn't feel right, or it might be my gut will tighten, or my throat, or my heart, or oh, I'll feel interesting. heavy around it, or kind of like you know, dreading it, like there isn't the energy to carry through with that. Yeah. I can give you a really specific example. I love that. Okay, so several years ago, I was invited um, to go out with a bunch of girlfriends for New Year's Eve. So the morning of, one of them texts me at 10 a.m. A bunch of us are getting together at 6 o'clock for dinner before the dance. Do you want to join us? Yeah. So there's a difference between your inner voice and your patterned thinking that's based on what you were taught to do from infancy. Okay. 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 So my pattern goes, cool, I love people, I love food, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my gut clenched. And I did something people never do. Oh, okay, what's that? I bought myself time to respond. I texted mm. her back. I'm waiting to hear back from somebody. I'll let you know. I was waiting to hear back from me. Oh, I love that. Okay, right? cool. So I was sitting with, I don't know why my gut has clenched, but I need time to find out. Yeah. So I had some things to do around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I check in again. By now, my pattern is really loud. I really like people. I really like food. I don't want to disappoint my friends. If I'm a good friend, I'll be there. That's what our patterns do. Hmm. Right? The quieter voice is the voice of your intuition. And I checked in again. Can I go? No. So I said, well, why not? And yeah. the message I got was, you're going to have a client at that time. Interesting. It's 2 o'clock on New Year's Eve. My phone has not run. So what do I do with that information coming direct from my subconscious? Mm-hmm. I text my friend back. I'm sorry I have an overlap. I can't make it. I'll see you at the dance at 8 o'clock. That's how much I trust my intuition. No kidding. 
Okay. At 4.30, the call comes. No way. I've been in town for a week. I've heard about you. I really wanted to see you. Things got in the way. Can I see you today at 6 o'clock? I spent 90 minutes with that client. I had 30 minutes to get to the dance. And she said to me, you know, I've been in town. um, I've heard about you. And and I, you know, couldn't get around to it. But, you know, it was like she got up that morning determined somehow that day she would see me. And the way the quantum universe works is through entanglement. That's the real internet. Everything in the universe hooked up to everything else. So her intent rippled out into the fabric of the universe. And just like an email in my inbox... I felt it in my gut. And your enteric nervous system in your intestines has 100 million neurons. Scientists call it our second brain. So when you get that feeling that something's off in the gut, it's usually saying, not this or not now. Really? Wow. That's so powerful. That's a crazy story to trust your intuition that much on New Year's Eve when most most of us would just, dude, it's New Year's Eve. I'm not like, I'm going out. You know, that's very, very cool that you trusted your gut there. So how, how does one call Cause like the first thing I thought of was like, well, you're like one in a minute, like you're a dime a dozen to actually trust your gut to that level. And like you said, I agree that I, I would imagine that we all have some capacity to do that. Um, but to actually do that and to believe in that, to have the faith, I think that's a big word. Well, I think what happens is when you get to be as old as I am, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll be 57 in June. Okay, but when you've lived this long, you've discovered over time what happens when you don't trust your intuition. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Oh, if I'd only listened to myself, I would have gone for that opportunity. I would have left that relationship. I would have moved homes. I would have. So you start to realize that first of all, intuition only gives you information on a need to know basis. I've woken up in the morning when I was mm. living in Kingston, Ontario, which is where I lived before I lived here, and I've been told drive downtown and stand in this store at one o'clock, period. And where I was living, a drive downtown was a 45 minute drive. So I do it and I'm standing in that store and somebody walks in the door I haven't seen in five years. But there's a reason why you're not told why to go stand in the store because you will then distort reality. You will be thinking, oh, this is what I'm going to say to this person when I see them, or I don't want to see them. Well, yeah, now you've thrown all this energy into the meeting instead of it being what it's supposed to be. So that's why you're not given more information. Hmm. But a lot of people will say, because I don't know why I'm getting this feeling, because I can't explain it, I'll ignore it. Intuition is like a muscle you exercise. Mm, The more you listen, the more it goes, oh, you're listening. Here's more information. So for me, there was a crossroads I hit. When I first started doing readings at 18, I'd actually gotten, I I mean, I grew up with visions and auditory messages and stuff like that. But I got a book from Coles called How to Tell Fortunes with Playing Cards. So before I ever picked up a tarot deck, I was using playing cards. And I started to notice I was getting things on people that weren't coming from the cards. Oh, interesting. And so there was this moment where I had a client in front of me and I thought, If I say this, even though I've got nothing to go on but what I'm getting internally, and that's what intuition is, it's information without deduction. You know because you know. I take the risk of being told, you're an idiot. (laughs) You don't know what you're talking about. Right, right. But if I don't take that risk, I'm disrespecting this information that's coming up. It's not going to keep giving me information if I ignore it. Mm, I took the risk and she said, you're absolutely right, yeah. And it gets to the point when you've done this as long as I have that I remember one time I was at an event and there was a woman who sat down in front of me at my booth 
her husband was standing behind her, and I always let people have people with them if they want that. She worked with me for over, I'd say, close to an hour. Hmm. Every single thing I said to her, she said, nope, you're wrong, you're wrong. Meanwhile, hubby is standing behind her, nodding vigorously. (laughs) But, you know, it would have been hubris on my part to say, well, your husband agrees. That's none of my business whether he ever tells her that or not. So all I could say is, well, all I can tell you is what I'm getting. Maybe it'll make sense later. I look at it this way. She didn't get up and walk away. She didn't ask for her money back. Some part of her was ready for that information, even if 90% of her was rejecting it. So interesting. And she will accept that information whenever she does. That's none of my business. Might have been on the car drive home. Might have been 10 years later. Not my business. Understood. I can't attach to outcome when I work. I also don't attach to people leaving necessarily being happy. They might be struggling with some core material we've brought to the surface. And they might need to have it at the surface so they can start integrating it. If I want to tuck everything away into a pretty package before they leave, I could be interfering with their work. Okay. There's a lot there. Let me just... So I have two questions, two, two routes I want to go here. So um, the, the second question I want to ask is about detaching from the outcome and how that... Um, like any impracticalities that may come with that. And I'm, I'm just curious. I have a couple questions. And then the first thing is I want to share an experience with you. So something I started to do was basically adopt um, a, a behavioral pattern where I would go left if I wanted to go right. So mm-hmm. if my initial instinct was like to just take a right turn. If I felt any little thing in my gut that just said like any like disease at all, mm-hmm. I would literally just do the opposite thing because I just didn't like, there's just that path wasn't good. And like I literally like taking a left over a right. Right. Like that's, that was an example that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what do you make of that? And, and also how could I get more specific? Cause you seem to be getting very clear, mm-hmm. like very clear signals. Like go to the but grocery store. I've been exercising store. that muscle for a really long time. Okay, so I guess yeah, I understand. So yeah. what I just have to You'll continue get more to practice as you as you're open to receiving it and willing to act on it. And willing to act. So open to receiving it, and then it's there. So the awareness of it, and then mm-hmm. to act on it and to trust it. Yes. And it's like a muscle. Okay. It's kind of like that part of you going, "Hey, you're listening. Here's some more information." Oh, you're not listening? Why should I tell you anything? Understood. That makes right. sense. That, that makes sense. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> and, and what you're doing is what Joseph Campbell called following your bliss. You're moving mm. towards where you feel open. And if everything's closing up, you're recognizing that and going, there's no energy to go in that direction. I need to go in a different direction. Oh, wow. So you just opened up something for me. Right. That's so interesting. Because always when I take the left over the right, there's the energy is much different over there. I get a burst mm-hmm. of energy, in fact. Yeah. That's so interesting. Wow, there's, I never... There's a pattern and an order to the universe. Mm. And when you're listening to your gut, you're following that order. There are places you're supposed to be, experiences you're supposed to have. And when you're listening, you're walking your path. When we don't listen, that's when we get into dis-ease. That can be physical. It can be something going wrong in your life. It doesn't mean listening to your intuition will always take you down the easiest path. But I believe it takes you down the path your soul chose in this lifetime for you to learn what you came here to learn. Mm, I love that. Uh, so my, the next direction I want to go is um, finding or revealing, let's just say, who we are or our true nature. Mm-hmm. So what do you what do you make of that statement, like true nature? I just want to like let's get a sure. definition for that kind of. Okay. Yeah. So I believe we are this loving, expansive awareness that's mm-hmm. connected to everything and everyone. And when I've been in deep states of meditation, I started meditating when I was 13. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. And I've, I've been in samadhi. So oh, let's okay. put it this way. If you liken the monkey mind to the ripples on the top of the ocean, blown by every little breeze, 
and samadhi is like sinking to the bottom of the ocean where everything is still. You're aware of the waves, you're just not paying attention to them. The monkey mind is doing its thing, you're meditating. Most people try to control those waves, they'll fail every time. Just let the monkey mind do its thing. Come back to the breath, back to the sensation. Have an anchor of back some to the sort. Emotion. Yes, gotcha. it might be the sensation of the air moving in and out of your nostrils. It might be the feeling that you're feeling at your heart. You might be focusing on a candle flame. You might be using a mantra. I see. I've played with lots of different ways to meditate. Mm -hmm. And I say work with what works for you. So when you're in that deep state, and I can only speak from my own experience, Benita disappears. I'm aware that there is this entity named Benita who's living mm -hmm. this lifetime. Mm -hmm. But the experience I'm having is of, the best way I can describe it is presence or beingness that there's this isness to everything that's this one energy experiencing everything. And there's no differentiation at that point between myself and it, except conceptually. I'm aware that I exist in this form with this personality. Mm. I'm also aware of my oneness with everything. Oh, so you, you, ha you have both. You have... Well, we do. Like, it's, it's like this. It's like there's the oneness... And we can never be disconnected from that. We're completely intrinsically all hooked up. Quantum gotcha. physics calls it entanglement, right? Okay. Everything like you can focus on, you know, something thousands of miles away and affect it if you know how to. I've done therapeutic tests on see. somebody in England and they can feel what I'm doing on their back even though I'm here. That's incredible. Right? Because time and space are concepts that basically distance doesn't matter when you know how to um, work energetically from a place of intention. Distance does not matter, time does not matter. So we come into this little ball of physical need, mm. <laughs> infants, <Yeah. Okay. laughs> um, from that expansiveness, no wonder we get so upset when we get here. We're like, oh my God, <laughs> it's not an easy experience to sort of encapsulate okay. that energy. And I believe we do it for a reason. We want to have experiences. It enriches the energy that we all are, which by its very nature seeks to expand and grow in understanding. And so I believe we live all these different lives, and I was born with past life recall, so I can remember some of the lives that pertain to the patterns I'm working on in this lifetime. Okay, I've even met people where we've instantly recognized each other from those lives. No kidding. Mm -hmm. And it's humbling. That's incredible. Wow. Because if you've had a life where you go, wow, people have treated me really badly this life, but you can remember a life where you were the one treating them badly, it all balances out. You get it. I need to experience both ends of the spectrum, having power and abusing it, being overpowered by people with power. So in this lifetime, I can use my power to empower others, knowing what both ends of the spectrum feel like. Interesting. That's very cool. Okay. And it's not a good or a bad. It's, it's like choosing to play a role in the theater. Sometimes it's nice to play the saint. It's awfully fun to play the bad guy, too. Mm. And there's things to be learned from both roles, right? Yes. And so you come into this little body, and immediately you have projected on you by parents, teachers, society, what you are expected to be because you're a girl, because you're a boy, because you're white, because you're black, because you're poor, because you're rich all these different concepts that start to show up and you start to be what those people tell you you are 
and suppress anything that doesn't fit that paradigm. And the what you suppress becomes your shadow. And we start to loathe those parts mm -hmm. of ourselves or even become afraid of them. A lot of my work is shadow work, helping people find those parts and bring them back to consciousness and integrate them. Because no matter what you think you have inside of you that you don't want the world to know about, it is a valid, valuable part of you that when allowed to become conscious also becomes constructive. No kidding. I've never heard it said like that, that we try to fit into a role, however it comes about, whether it's society or parents, and we try to fit into that role and everything that isn't that role, we suppress it. And that's what becomes our shadow. Because we all had a shadow at some point, right? But it's, it's like I might have, say, somebody come to me who was taught to be the good girl, the good boy. Gotcha. Right? Smile, be polite. Yeah, yeah. And maybe now they're an adult and they have problems charging what they're worth in their work or collecting on their Interesting. bills. Interesting, okay. Because they were taught you're not allowed to be angry, but anger is the energy of action. Properly used, it's the part of you that says, you need to pay this bill. You can't speak to me that way. Waiter, that's not what I ordered. This is how I'm going to construct my business so it has an actual fee structure. Mm. It's an energy that helps to define and make clear, this is who I am, this is how I'm showing up, this is what I need, okay. and this is what I'm prepared to do. You see? So when you're doing all of mm. that, it's, it's like you're way too young probably to have seen this, but in the original Star Trek series... Too young. Yeah, there is an episode where Captain Kirk goes into the transporter and it malfunctions and splits him in two. And there's weepy sensitive Kirk and there's angry out of control Kirk. So at first sensitive Kirk thinks, this guy's an animal, I have to confine him. Mm. But what he notices is when he's asked to take command of the ship, he's, he's, he can't. He can't make a decision. He's, he doesn't have that energy to go this is what I want done so he grabs that part of himself and brings it back onto the transporter and melts with it again he now knows I need that side of myself to be a complete person who can command a ship that's a fantastic example wow so what do you think about um having like no positive or negative emotions just emotions well, I think that's a really good question. I think that, you know, the way I often put it to people is they'll go, oh, I met this person with negative energy. And I say, energy's neutral. Mm. What's happening is they're triggering something inside mm. of you that was there before you even met them. Mm. Something that was already there that yeah. caused you to yeah. react. So we have a choice. In our relationships with people, we can either say, could you stop doing that thing so I don't have to be triggered and look at my stuff? Or we can go, wow, what is this bringing up for me? What do I get to learn about myself? It reminds me of the story of uh, these two young monks. Mm. And they would go out every day into the town. And there was this man who hung out outside the monastery and would berate them and call them names and treat them really badly. And they got so fed up with this, they went to the head monk and said, could you do something about this guy? They come out the next day, the man isn't there. They come back to the monastery, he's still not there. They're overjoyed. They walk into the monastery and the head monk says, come on, we're having a big assembly to greet our new teacher. Okay. It's the guy that was sitting no outside. No way. Sure, because we learn best from the people who push our buttons. They're the ones that dig up our stuff that we wouldn't see otherwise. In fact, when you encounter somebody in your life who drives you crazy, the most effective thing you can do is ask, what part of me is just like that? 
Because if there wasn't a part of you like that, you wouldn't be attached to how they're behaving. Makes sense. You might even have compassion. But if they're triggering your anger or your fear or your grief, they're just helping you dig up stuff that was in there that needed to come to the surface anyway. Yeah. It reminded me of Eckhart Tolle quite a bit there. Yeah. What we were, yeah. What we react to strongly in others is present within us. It's like one of the, yeah. Well, the quantum universe is a dream state. I don't know if you've ever studied Tibetan dream yoga. Okay, so Which I've been... very interesting. <laughs> it is. It is very cool. I have been a lucid dreamer since I was eight years old. So cool. And you know what that is, right? I do. Okay. So, and I've even over the years conducted experiments in my lucid dreams. So I would tell myself, okay, the next time I'm lucid in a dream, I'm going to try this experiment. Okay. And when I would become lucid, I'd go, oh yeah, I was going to try this. So I would, I would do this thing, right? And in Tibetan dream yoga, they say, first, you need to know that a dream is a dream. That's lucid dreaming. You're aware that you're dreaming while you're in the dream state. Then you need to understand this is a dream. We're just little flying light particles. But our minds interpret all of this as solid, as separate. Where do my particles end and the chair begins? They don't. Mm. They're completely merged. But we define things. Our mind from a very young age teaches us about that. If you want to watch an excellent movie, stream What the Bleep Do We Know? Okay. It's a whole movie, and it's there. It's interspersed. The storyline is interspersed with talks with mystics and quantum physicists who are all saying the same thing about how we literally, from the moment we wake up, make up our reality with our minds. Yeah, makes okay? sense. So then the final state is, I believe they call it the clear light of seeing. Normally in our dreams and in our waking dream, subject-object separation right that's what we believe it's it's the name of the game Sense we decide perception. to play gotcha. well it's the idea that i'm separate from you that i yes, am a subject yes. acting on an object or like self and other yeah yes so in that clear light of seeing there is no longer subject object there's just this light that is consciousness i think our minds enjoy the game of coming mm. into this reality adopting a role i'm going to play this part and I think some of the more compassionate people say, I'm willing to play the part of the person who treats you badly in this lifetime. I'm willing to have you hate me in this lifetime so that you can learn the lesson you wanted to learn this time. Interesting. That's an interesting take. The compassionate people want to do that. That's very fascinating. Can you imagine if maybe in one lifetime you were somebody's father and in the next life maybe you're going to be brothers and one of you is abusive to the other because it's like I need to know how that feels so that I develop more compassion so I don't treat people that way. Mm. A lot of us in the helping fields have had challenging experiences growing up yeah. that built in our compassion mm. that enable us to help others. Interesting. And we've, you know, I've come around to being grateful to the people who presented those challenges because they helped me become who I am. Yes, I love that. Right? Yeah, I love that a lot. I was talking to a... Uh, a mental health therapist earlier today and she was mentioning that a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts are very grateful for their experience because it was so much suffering that it made them who they were so that's very cool yeah um and well in buddhism in fact there's the different realms there's the hell beings hungry ghosts animals humans demigods and gods okay so hell beings would be addicts in fact even the way they're drawn is you know big bellies tiny tiny necks big appetite they can't fill Mm. Okay, um, that's the hungry ghosts. The hell beings are like 
Hitler would be considered Hellbeing, okay? So hell beings, hungry ghosts, animals, humans. And they say the most fortunate position to be born into is human. Because if you're born as a demigod or a god, and you might think of that as the really people born into wealth, people who don't have to struggle much in life. Okay, okay gotcha. So animals don't have enough consciousness to learn the dharma, the spiritual material, do the spiritual work. Demigods and gods are having too good a time to be bothered. Humans are conscious enough and just miserable enough to want to do the work. <laughs> so yeah. the most fortunate state to be born into is that of human. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, so let I'd like to move to a. Uh, I'd like to move towards how to help those who maybe not even help, but how to open some awareness in those who have anxiety. Okay. Because that's like the audience listening to this is 17 to 24 years old and we are anxious people, you know, a lot. What do we do with our life? And we take it very, very seriously. And I've been sharing this. I've been trying to get this message through, but coming from you, I think it would mean a little bit more um, that we can't make a mistake really. And that I want to turn around and ask you, why can't you make a mistake? It's a great question. I just think that I live here. Here's what I believe. I believe, believe a paradox that everything matters and nothing matters. So what I mean by that is that everything matters in the sense that every moment I think can be very sacred and every movement, every, every second, but then also nothing matters that like, we're going to live a million lives. Like Buddhism never Mm -hmm. rushes anyone on, you know, like you get a million lives to live. So like, Mm -hmm. does it, what, what really matters? Well, it reminds me of what Gandhi said. Whatever you do, Mahatma Gandhi? Yes, yes. Yes. He said, whatever you do, no matter how insignificant it might seem, it's very important that you do it. Mm. So it's the whole idea of mindfulness. It's the act of, ah, here is it. You know, I'll give you another good little story about it. So these two monks are walking along, and there's a young woman by the river. And the older monk picks her up and carries her across the river and deposits her down. And the two monks continue walking. And after a few hours, the young monk says, I, I just can't take it anymore. I have to ask you, why did you break our rules and touch that woman? We're not supposed to touch women. Mm. And the older monk says, I put her down two hours ago. Why are you still carrying her? Mm. That's so powerful. We do what is asked of us in the moment and we let go. It is, we suffer, in Buddhism they say we suffer through attachment and aversion. I really want this experience to continue, I really want that one to stop. And because we don't always have that ability, we live in an impermanent world, we suffer. We stop suffering when we are non-attached, which is not the same as detached. Detached is suppression of emotion. I don't care. Non-attachment is, I'm willing to feel everything, whether it's grief, anger, fear, love, joy, whatever, and just Mm -hmm. go, oh. I'm having this experience. Oh, now I'm having this experience. Here's another experience without trying to hang on to one or push one away. I see. And one of the really interesting experiences you can have with that, and we're very fortunate because we have the Dhammasarabhi Center near Merit. Okay. It's a Vipassana Center. If you Google Meditation Center I'm Merit, going there in June. You'll get it. You're going. And I've done it. I did it in 2014. Yeah. Oh, so for your listeners to understand, it's okay. 10 days meditating 10 hours a day in silence and what you're taught is how to feel everything every subtle energy every emotion every physical sensation with equanimity Mm. meaning not preferring one feeling over another just ah here's another experience oh and here's another 
So imagine walking through your life, responding to what is in front of you, and then letting go. Yeah. So oh, if you're wow. called upon to do something, you act, but you want to act from your center, not from your habits, your patterns. If you're acting out of fear, and you talk about anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're going to your energy will be contracted. And you won't be as present. In fact, um, if we look at this from a neuroscientific point of view, okay, when we are in fear, we're in flight, fright, or freeze mode. Our brain function goes into our brain stem. It's the primitive part of our brain that was designed to run away from wild animals, fight off marauding hordes that wanted to take over our village. It's very primitive. It doesn't know how to reason. It just knows how to flee or beat somebody up, or freeze. Usually none of those are good solutions in today's society. <laughs> okay, So I'm going to give your readers a suggestion here, that um, your listeners, when you're in that mode, imagine yourself in a situation that is pleasant for you, and practice it when you're not stressed. Interesting. So, see, your mind does not know the difference between something you do and something you imagine doing. So if you recreate in your mind your perfect place, right? And it might be something you saw in a dream. It might be a place in reality. It might be hugging your dog, right? So when you completely recreate it with all of your senses, your brain thinks you're there. See, the brain is designed through neural pathways that are reinforced by whatever drugs we put into our brain from the pharmacy in our brain. If we're always stressed, we're always dropping adrenaline into our brain. It reinforces the fearful neural pathways. When you start putting endorphins in instead, those Mm. old neural pathways break down and new ones form. They talk a lot about this actually um, with an illustration that's very cool in that movie, What the Bleep Do We Know? Oh yeah, So you can literally rewire your brain by noticing when you're stressed, oh yeah, take some deep breaths, go to your happy place, relax your body completely, imagine with all of your senses that you're there. Dr. Bill Crawford talks about this as well. Mm. Uh, He has a technique for this about learning to reimagine your state so that your brain starts to think it's somewhere happier and releases the endorphins. Mm. So you can train your mind to develop that habit and gradually you rewire the brain. I also like um, what Abraham had to say about this and this is some of the channeled material that's out there. Okay, please share. A lot of times, if you're really in a despondent state and somebody says, oh, think positive, mm-hmm. that's usually a point where you either want to smack them or <laughs> Yeah. Because it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. How can you go from, I can't see how I can go forward one more minute to think positive thoughts? So Abraham came up with the idea of a stairway. You think about the next best thought you can get to so it might be for example interesting yeah it's really neat you might go from this is an absolutely terrible day i feel like my life is over i failed that test i where do i go from here to i don't always feel this way i know it's possible to feel better than this now you feel a little bit of relief and i know there's something i could do right now to make myself feel better, whether it's make a cup of tea, call a friend, hug a dog, read a book. There's something I can do just to give myself a little bit of a break from this experience or take a nap, right? Mm. One more step up. 
I know tomorrow might be a better day. And while right now I can't really see a solution to this, I know when my mind is calmer and clearer and I've had some rest, it'll come up with ideas I can't have right now because mm. I'm too fearful right mm. now. I okay. can't get to that part of my brain, right? That's one more step up, right? And, you know, I know I've gone through experiences like this before and I have come out the other side. So I know I'm capable of that. One more step okay. up. So you're gradually talking your way into a better and better experience. That's a very cool idea. I love that. Abraham's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so here's the thing that seems so rational. That seems like a very rational thing to do, a good idea. So in the moment, how do we actually implement that? Because I would, I've well, been Well, first there. you have to get to your neocortex. It does, and that's a tough climb sometimes for and us. And that's why sometimes something as basic as changing your breath is mm. so important. We in our society are hypervigilant breathers. We breathe very shallowly. With our chest, right? That's well, we, we breathe shallowly and quickly. They have, okay. they have actually checked out the Sherpas. What who, are Sherpas? Sherpas are the Nepalese people who, when people want to climb Mount Everest, the Sherpas carry all their gear up the mountain. Oh, okay. 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 And I mean, I've been to the foot of Mount Everest. Oh, that's so cool. Right? I've been at 18,000 feet. And it's not easy when your body isn't acclimated to it. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Um, so these are people who live in that environment all the time. And what they've discovered is mm. they take far fewer breaths per minute than we do. They breathe much more slowly, much more deeply. And therefore, they are calmer. Okay? Um, when I did Vipassana, I had a very strange experience. Now... My heart rate is only usually around 34 to 38 beats per minute. It's okay. gone as low as 28. Okay, that's, that's quite low, isn't that's it? That's very low. Yeah. I actually had a cardiologist check me out, and he said, I've met one other person like you, also a yogi. He said, you just have incredible control over your heart rate. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. So wow. when I went there, and I mean, 10 days, no reading, no writing, no stimulation, but the inner work, everything in me got really, really quiet. And one morning I'm laying there and I realize something. I'm not breathing. No way. All of a sudden, my body would do this really spontaneous, really deep inhalation, really deep exhalation, and then nothing for a while. Really? And I'm lying there going, should I be calling 911? What is this about? And it made sense to me now why they can bury people under the ground for a week and they dig them up and they're fine. Those are people who've learned to slow their heart rate down so much. They're in almost like a hibernation state. Mm. So when everything slows down inside of us, and it doesn't mean everybody has to do what I did, but when we slow down our breathing, we naturally are telling our autonomic nervous system, I'm safe. But when we have our shallow, hypervigilant breathing, we're telling our nervous system we're in danger. Um, Eckhart Tolle sends out these present moment reminders, and I, I get them by email. And there's one where he says, just be in this moment and ask yourself, is there a problem right now? Most of the time when we are in fear, it's not actually something happening in that moment. In fact, we're usually imagining a frightening future mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. <laughs> you know i think mark twain said it there are many things in life that have frightened me 99 percent of which never happened <laughs> that is awesome i've never heard that before that's awesome <laughs> I'm gonna have we to scare use that. ourselves to death yeah 
Oh, you know? God. I remember so being a mature student at Queen's University with four children I was raising on my own. At the same time. Oh, my God. And I was going into an economics exam. Honest to God, it was like Greek being spoken to me when the teacher would talk. I went to study groups. I still didn't understand it. <laughs> yeah. So what I did that day is I went out and I got an awesome haircut because I thought if I'm going down, I'm going down looking. <laughs> yeah. And I let go. I just yeah. did the best I could on the exam and I let go. Well, I tell you, they must have bell curved the hell out of that exam because <laughs> I passed by the skin of my teeth. Yeah. But I'd already accepted Interesting. It's like when I was learning to ride my motorcycle. Mm. I failed the test several times, the slow skills test. And finally, I was on this bike, and I'm going along, and the bike stalls during my test. No way. And I said to myself, okay, I have probably failed this test, but it is my path to complete the test. So I started it up, and I finished it flawlessly, and I passed because I didn't get flustered. I had already accepted I may have failed. If you fail at anything, you have never actually failed because you will always learn something from every experience if you choose to. And if you fail at something, try something else. I sat across from a couple on a little dinner cruise one time and he said to me, I'm working on my second million. I said, really? Mm. He said, yeah, first one didn't work out. That's awesome. Isn't that a great attitude? Yeah. Try stuff. And, and life is always going to throw things at you so you can learn. I think about mm. Leonard Cohen. Here he was in his 70s. He had a couple million dollars tucked away for his retirement. He goes off to an ashram to have a spiritual experience. Whole idea being he's going to come home and retire comfortably. He comes home. His spiritual experience continues. The guy that he put in charge of his money embezzled. He came home to nothing. Hmm. The universe wasn't done with him. He had more books to write. He had more songs to write. He had to continue to work. And he produced more material. Didn't he worked until like his 90s or something? Like that? That's crazy. I didn't know that. He, I don't know how, how old he was, but he continued to work. The universe wasn't done with him. You know, I always say I get up in the morning with plans, and then the universe has other plans, and I go along with them. No kidding. Sure. Because my limited ego consciousness doesn't know what's best for me. So I look at it this way. In every moment, the universe is giving us exactly what we need for our spiritual journey. So when you are in anxiety, when you are stressed, try to turn inward with compassion for the part of you that's frightened. And remember, not all of you is frightened. Your higher consciousness, it's unflappable. The only part of you that's scared is that limited ego consciousness. Those ideas you have about who you are, who you're supposed to be, what you've been taught to believe about yourself. Mm -hmm. Those are just ideas, and ideas can change. In fact, most of the major inventions in the world were invented because somebody screwed up. Really? Somebody made a mistake. Yeah. Bread that rises, yeast accidentally got into somebody's bread. And the dough rose. Oh, that's how you can make, un, you know, there's leaving and unleavened bread. That's how that came about. So the same with a lot of inventions. It happened from somebody making a mistake or somebody getting an intuitive hit. Elias Howe invented the sewing machine. He couldn't figure out how to get the thread in the needle so it would go into the cloth. One night he has a dream. He's surrounded by savages holding spears, and they're coming at him with the spears back and forth. 
and he notices there's a hole in the tip of the spear. And that's how he figured out the hole needs to go in the tip of the needle and the needle needs to move up and down to go into the claw. That's so crazy. We are connected to everything in the universe. All the answers are there for all of us, but we need to learn to listen within. When we get anxious, quite often we're looking for an external solution and sometimes those are necessary. Sometimes we need medication to make that bridge. We need counseling. We need support. We don't have to do it all alone. But learning to befriend yourself, knowing your higher self can love the part that's struggling, can support it, that's huge. And it's something that I offer my clients is tools where I can actually help them connect with the part of them that is struggling and parent that part, because it's often a core pattern from early in life, still stuck at the age where the trauma occurred. Mm, okay. And that part will become part of the adult and evolve if it's given the right support, but most people just don't know how to do that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's incredible. So I, I wanna go back to one thing that you said about um, something along the lines of embracing failure. You didn't use that exact word. That's a very good way of putting it. In fact, Pema Chodron wrote a book called Fail, Fail Again, Fail Better. Okay. And it I was like actually that. an address she gave to the graduating students at Naropa University. Okay. And it's all about embracing failure. We think of failure as something to be ashamed of instead of realizing it's a natural part of the learning experience. You know, I think of project managers. When a project is finished, they do something called lessons learned. All the shareholders sit around and say, what didn't work? Where did we fail? Well, right. if we had yes, brought the yes. drywallers in sooner, then these guys could have done the carpets. Or we spent too much here. We went off our budget. We went out of scope. Now, by sitting down and talking about it, they know what they can do better next time. They don't beat themselves up for it. They just go, okay, we're learning as we go. Okay, that's very cool. I, I actually want to um, change directions quite completely here and go back to something that you were talking about, about non-attachment versus detachment and how this could help us with our ego making up stories. So for example, for me, uh, the, large story, mo the majority of my suffering came from an eating disorder in when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And so... For me, what I've done, and it's actually worked at times, but then I, I feel like I'm almost like too detached from Brett, because like I can detach, and then but now it's like I, I, I like, and I don't feel anything anymore. But then I, it's almost like I want to feel something. Yes. You know. So I think Vipassana will be very good for you. Oh, wonderful! Because <laughs> when I started meditating, um, I was going through a lot of challenges as a kid, and I meditated to leave my body to escape my reality. Vipassana teaches you to use the body as an instrument of meditation. You're staying present in it and experiencing everything. Our society has taught us to be a bunch of walking heads. We actually become intolerant and even afraid of our own emotions. And I think of emotions as energy in motion. We are, our body is actually an energy field designed to flow from top down. And when we go, oh, I don't want to have that feeling, it's like throwing a rock in that river, and now instead of ease, we have dis-ease. Now it's, there's turbulence, and there's problems with the flow, and that can eventually lead to actual physical disease. I think sometimes when people refuse to feel an emotion, and they do it for many years, they can grow a tumor instead, or have you know, something, some joints hurting, or something else going wrong. Um, Louise Hay's book, 
you can heal your life is all about that. All the different physical symptoms, which she says are related to particular emotional symptoms. So if we want our bodies to be at ease, we have to be willing to feel. Detachment is blocking feeling. I don't want to feel that. Mm -hmm. Non-attachment is I'm willing to feel everything without necessarily giving it a story. So think of it this way. If you imagine little Brett, three years old, like, okay, coming gotcha. into the room, and he's angry, or he's sad, or he's scared, and you're like, oh my God, can you just leave till you can put a smile on your face? Mm. But that's what we do to ourselves. Instead of going, oh, come sit on my knee, tell me what's bothering you, I'm here for you. Instead of having compassion Nurturing for it. our own pain, loving, okay, we go, I don't want to feel that. And I guarantee you, mm. at some point in your life, you will need to unpack that luggage. <laughs> yeah. And the cool thing is, you may or may not get a realization from that. It just may need to be unpacked. One time, I'm also a therapeutic touch practitioner, and we get together and we work on each other to keep learning about our practice. So one day I'm driving to a practice and I'm listening to Abraham talk about the art of allowing. Mm. And all the way there I'm like, whatever happens today, I'm going to allow. I love it when my psyche sets me up for a fall. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm laying on this table and normally, you know, somebody works on you for 20 minutes, you wait another 20 to let the energy gel and then you switch places. So I'm laying there and she's working on me and all of a sudden I start to cry. Mm. And my pattern goes... You know, Benita, if you take three deep breaths, you can stop this now and not embarrass yourself. But I said I would allow. And so the crying continued. And after about 20 minutes, that voice comes up and says, now you're inconveniencing people. You need to stop this. But I said I would allow. And the crying continued. I ended up crying for a solid hour and a half. And by the time I was done, somebody was holding my head. Somebody was holding my hands. People were holding my feet. I didn't even know that was going on. I was so deep into whatever this was. And the most interesting thing happened when I sat up. Mm. I felt my heart chakra open, really, really wide. This energy just beaming out of me. And I'm with all these energy workers going, feel this. This is amazing. Like, feel this energy coming out of my field. And what it was is that it was like I'd done the emotional house cleaning. All that debris, all that clogged up grief that had never been released, got released. And now the energy through my heart chakra was just flowing. We're supposed to flow like that. But because we go, I shouldn't feel this. Oh, I wish I was done with this. All that judgment creates those blocks. Whereas if we just accept, and to be honest, Brett, to this day, I don't know what I was crying about. No kidding. I don't need to know. If that information needs to surface, it will. It's enough that I allowed space for that part of me to unpack that luggage. Wow, that is so powerful. that is so, so powerful. I, that's And that's why I'm 57 going on 30. No it's why I can go, like, some nights I don't sleep a lot. I had maybe four hours last night. Yeah. I have a ton of energy. Yeah. Because I'm not holding down all those parts of me and not dealing with them. We are meant to have a lot of energy. And yes, it's nice if you can get more sleep. And some nights I can. But it's not... I, I have a lot of energy for somebody my age because I am deliberately, consciously working on unearthing those parts of myself and welcoming them back. And they can come to me angry and hateful and scared and sad. And I'm going to say, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Tell me your story. How can I support you? And eventually, when that energy becomes conscious, it will come out in a constructive way. 
Mm. It won't be destructive. But when you first see it, it might look destructive. Yeah. It's never seen the light of day. It's still acting as though you're still going through whatever created the pattern in the first place. Mm. It doesn't know it's in an adult body. It doesn't know it has other choices now. And a lot of times when young people feel scared, feel trapped, you know, that part doesn't know it's got choices. But by allowing it up, allowing it to decide for itself what's actually going on, it can become conscious. And ultimately, what are we all here to do? But to wake Awaken. up. Yeah. That's right. Most people think, oh, this will be fun. When they first start the spiritual work, this looks really cool. And then you get to that point where, wow, this is hard. And that's when a lot of people bail. And they become dabblers. I'll go try something else. And as soon as, mm. as soon as that starts to get like, oh, God, if you stay in this any longer, you're going to have a realization. It's going to be uncomfortable. I'll go do something else. It's one of the things I like about Vipassana. You promise you're going to be there for 10 days. Right. It's no escape. Yeah. And you will go through every kind of emotion and physical and subtle energy sensation. And it's true freedom, true freedom, when you can feel anything and not need to run away from it. Oh, I love that. And what we really need to do, because the fear comes from not trusting your path and not trusting the world around you, is trusting yourself. Trusting you have the strength to get through things, and that strength can include crying, it can include asking for help, it can include talking to somebody about your feelings, right? Strength is saying, I need some support here, and I'm willing to support myself through this. I'm willing to love those parts that haven't felt loved and accepted by me. Because ultimately, we have everything we need. We just need to learn to turn inward and give it to ourselves. And when you can do that, when those parts now know they're loved and accepted by you, if other people come into your life and want to love you, you'll actually let it in because you'll know you deserve it. That's amazing. I feel like I'm almost like tearing up a little bit over here. I'm not sure why, what it was you just said. It's touching on your truth. This tissue's right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, the last question, because I want to be respectful of your time, is um, what is uh, what's one thing somebody could start today or tonight, whenever they're listening to this? What's what's something that they could try? Maybe it's a reflection. Maybe it's going for a walk. Um, what's something that they could do? Tara Brock said this in her book, um, Radical Acceptance. Mm. There was a young man who was meditating and he was really, he was struggling with feeling his feelings. And she suggested he place his hand on his chest when he was meditating and say, I care about this suffering. Try it right now. See how that feels for you. Oh, it's very... Yeah. Yeah. Remember, every cell in your body is conscious. Every cell is listening to how you're talking to it, what you're saying about yourself. Every part of you is looking for love. And a lot of times those powerful emotions are just a part of you hoping you'll notice. Just pay attention to what's coming up and do your best to stay present. So when you get fearful, mm -hmm. stop and ask yourself, you know what, okay, here's a great technique, okay? I love this one. This is something I created. So what you can do whenever you're feeling any kind of anxiety or stress is close your eyes 
And imagine you're an alien that's dropped into your body from outer space and has seen everything for the first time. Okay. And when you open your eyes, really look around you. Really look. Close your eyes right now. Just try this with me. And when you open your eyes, look around at everything in the room as though you're seeing it for the first time. So tell me about that. Tell me what you felt when you opened your eyes. Hmm. Let me think. It's very, I don't know, it's, it's kind of tough to explain. Let me try. Maybe like, how did it get like that? You know? Um, wonder. Mm, great. Yeah, wonder. I want to. I feel like I might be pulling from another experience, but something very like, like ah, like this is what it is. Yeah. You know, like that's what it is. There's no problem about it. You know, like there's. Yeah, and that's what enlightenment is. It's acceptance of what is, whatever it is, and that can be something beautiful. It could be sitting next to a loved one who's leaving this world, taking their last breath. There's a beauty in that too because it's so present because you can't be there and wall off well, you can but I don't recommend it mm-hmm. <laughs> um, everything is infused with a sacred beauty if you're willing to stop be present and experience it one meditation I like to use is where you take a deep breath you exhale and then you wait you don't breathe again until your body says it's time. There is a quiet space of non-activity there between breaths. It's so different from holding your breath. You're just exhaling and relaxing into that non-breathing state. And if you practice it enough, everything will get slower and there'll be more space between breaths. And you sit in that stillness. I just tried that while you were explaining it. It's fantastic. (laughs) Adyashanti, who by the way is amazing, uh, very well worth reading, adyashanti.org, A-D-Y-A-S-H-A-N-T-I. He says, listen to the silence behind everything. Mm-hmm. All of this activity, all of this phenomena, it's an illusion, it's a dream. Yes, we have to be present in it. Yes, we have to take action in it. But don't get too caught up in it because it's one of many experiences you will have in many different lifetimes, in mm. many different bodies. So have the experience, but be aware that you are this incredible consciousness having many experiences in many lifetimes, all in the eternal now. And this is just a small blip on that. I remember when I was... 13. When I was 11, I read the King James Bible cover to cover. I was starting to explore spirituality because I wanted explanations for these spiritual experiences I was having. Oh, that makes sense. And one day I was praying, and all of a sudden, I encountered what we call God. Mm. It was as though I was, kneeling, like? I was kneeling at the foot of a mountain of tiny light particles. And the mountain was so vast. I couldn't possibly comprehend the summit. And I knew that I was one of those particles 
no more or less significant than any other particle. And I knew I belonged to that mountain. And that, for me, was my experience of God, this powerful energy that makes up everything. And we can never be less than anybody else or better than anybody else. We're all that light. We are all that consciousness. And we can never be alone or separate from that. Our aloneness, our separateness is the illusion. And if you go deep enough inside of yourself, in the Bible they call it the peace that passeth all understanding. What I see that as meaning is it's a state of peace you cannot get to through intellect. You can't reason yourself there. If you surrender fully to what you are feeling underneath the turbulence, underneath the fear, your true nature is mm. peace, is love. That's that stillness underneath the waves. It's always there. And if you surrender, the waves will gradually drift you down to the bottom and you will experience your natural state. Adyashanti said, enlightenment isn't something we achieve. It's something we relax into. It's our natural state. All the cacophony of all that angst is a creation of the ego consciousness, which is a mental construct. It's not who we really are. Again, it's ideas we've bought into. Let's talk about your fear of making a mistake. Mm. If there is no sense of judgment, there's nothing to fear because there's no one to judge us. And often we are our own worst critics. Right? Um, I remember reading when I was a kid the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And it was a series of correspondences between um, a devil and an archangel or something like that. And they were talking about heaven and hell. Hell was a place where whatever you wanted to create, you did perfectly the first time. No sense of achievement, no sense of accomplishment, because you could do it perfectly every time. That's mm -hmm. hell. Wow. I'm not sure I fully grasp that. Well, imagine if you wanted to paint a masterpiece. So you paint a masterpiece. And there's no striving. There's no effort. Perfect every time. How quickly would that get really boring? It's not like pretty fast if you just do it every time. It's yeah. perfect. Yeah. 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 Can't make a mistake. There's no mistakes. Mm. So the act of creation must have what we call mistakes or it's not creation there has to be the light and the dark mm, I love that I remember doing a painting class where we were we were finger painting it was like a pointillism with our fingers and we could either use color or black and white so you had a blob of black paint and white and you could make some grays like a grayscale and I'm putting daubs on this canvas and I don't know what it's becoming. I'm just intuitively putting the dogs where they're supposed to go. Mm. And after a while, I realized that there's this sort of white wave going over and a black wave going under and this gray in between. And just as I realize what it is, somebody comes over and says, oh, that's yin and yang. I didn't know I was creating that. It just came out. My mother did an amazing painting of birch trees. By the way, my mother can't paint. 
Interesting. And she has no memory of having created that painting. Some part of her came out and did that. I am not much of a drawer at all. I'm not, a, I'm not an artist. But one time I was just doodling, and for some reason I doodled the head of Medusa. Really? Perfect depiction of a friend of mine who's also a psychic. I ended up giving it to her. Really? I've never created something with that skill before or since. Creation is when you get out of your own way and you let the universe work through you. Mm. Whether that's creating a child or a book or a poem or a a song. You know, I think about... um, Somebody wrote a book about the sinking of the Titanic. They wrote it as a novel, but it was a pretty accurate depiction of the actual event. Except it was published 18 years before the Titanic sunk. Really? Somebody had tapped into the Akasha, the record of everything that will ever happen or ever happened, all happening in the eternal now. Such a powerful emotional experience, they tapped into that. Lots of people have channeled material because they've gotten out of their own way and it's worked through them. So how do we how do we do that? How do we allow that flow that flow? Well, to first happen? we stop judging ourselves because when you judge mm-hmm. yourself, it's literally a constriction. It's 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 moving from, it's. The ego thinks, what will people think of me? Mm -hmm. I'm so afraid of being seen as a failure. And it causes you to constrict your energy field and all your chakras so you don't flow anymore. Mm -hmm. The higher self says, how can I serve? The energy flows outward. But the energy, because it's coming from self-love, also allows energy to flow in. So you become a conduit. The whole concept of heaven on earth is you're allowing universal divine loving energy to come into you and out of you and into the earth plane. And you must receive in order to give. That's why it's ask and ye shall receive. Right? That makes sense. So when I started this work, I said to the universe, allow me to be of service, but support me in that service. Because it is far less selfish for me to live well because it allows me to give you my full attention if you're my client. I'm not having to think about how I'm going to put a roof over my head. Mm. It's a sustainable business. I've had people who... You know, three years pass, suddenly they need to see me. I'm still here, still doing my thing because I created a sustainable business. Mm-hmm. And my accountant can feed his kids. My, you know, the people I buy my clothes from, jewelry, skincare products, whatever. Other businesses in town are doing well because I do well. If we allow ourselves to receive fully, we can make a bigger difference in the world. That's pretty unselfish. But if we're beating ourselves up, we are hampering that ability to truly serve. So much of this is getting over ourselves and getting out of our own way. So you say, what needs to come through me? And what patterns do I have that are constricting that? Have you ever seen the videos by the guy, um, he calls he calls them how to be ultra spiritual? No, I, ha- no I haven't seen those. Long red hair, oh, usually yeah. has a purple bandana. Oh, You've yeah. never seen these. I don't think so. Oh, my God. You have to watch them. They yeah. are hilarious. Okay. He's poking fun at spirituality. He even wrote, wrote a book, How to Be Ultra Spiritual. That title should tell you everything. Yeah. So he was on a Sounds True course on self-acceptance. Okay. And he started out as an emotional healing coach. So he had this alter ego, this irreverent part of himself. And if you Google J.P. Sears after this, you're going to have such a good time because he's yeah, got well, so I, many funny videos. Out I'll do that and with the bleep, I'll look at yeah, recommendations. Yeah. yeah. And he said, you know, I had this irreverent part of me and I was so afraid to show it to the world because I thought people would judge it. Mm. Letting that part up completely changed his career. He even has 
an online community called Awake AF. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I mean by irreverence, right? Yeah. And people flock to him because they want to become more spiritual, but they want to enjoy the process. Because of his irreverence, it's engaging. But the world almost didn't get to see that light because he thought of it as dark. Our shadow is nothing to be feared. It's just parts of ourselves we don't understand. And when they're allowed up and allowed to become conscious, they become very beautiful, powerful parts of us. Mm. So when you're in fear, sit with that and say, how far back does this go? What is it really attached to? Often it's a core pattern from early childhood. And the universe keeps putting in front of us opportunities to face that by triggering it now. And if you have an experience and your emotional reaction is overboard, that usually suggests something from childhood that's piggybacking on the back of the current experience. So instead of beating yourself up, wow, I really overreacted, get curious instead. Why did I react so strongly? What else was going on inside of me that was so attached that that's what got triggered? Mm. Move from condemnation to curiosity and to compassion. That is, that's, that makes so much sense. Like, it, And even when you're saying that, it just feels so good and right. And I can think of examples for myself when I've been too hard on myself. And it just feels right. That's like, wow, that's totally the way to handle it. But I feel like a lot of us, myself included, will we'll get in our heads and we'll, you know, yeah. it's, it's very, it's easy, it's easy to, to fall into that self-hatred and believe that voice that, that's talking to us. So would you... So s- imagine a younger version of yourself is hearing you talk to it like that. Oh, I forgot about that. Do we help children by verbally abusing them, by putting them down, by telling them they're failures? No, we say it's okay if that didn't work out. Try again. Or let's try a different way. Mm. Right? You know, anytime you go to learn something new, you're probably going to feel awkward and weird about it at first. And one thing I decided when I hit my 50s is I want to keep challenging myself. Um... Our brain actually becomes rigid, and it's what brings on things like dementia when we stop learning new things because we stop growing new neural pathways. So, for example, a chef learning a new recipe isn't growing new neural pathways. He already knows how to cook. But if he's learning a new language, he's getting... He's growing. Oh, cool. Yeah, I teach a whole class on neuroplasticity and the healthy aging brain. Oh, very cool. We have to keep challenging our brains. Okay. Right? So when we beat ourselves up, we also are likely to ensure that we don't go outside our comfort zone and try anything where we might look foolish. Mm. I met a woman when I was going to Queens. Um, She was also a mature student. And she did something really neat. She decided for one year, and these are her words, to do things that I suck at. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, so why do you want to do that? And she said... Because I notice I'm getting too careful. I'm not taking risks. I'm not trying new things for fear of not looking like I know what I'm doing. So at the end of that year, I asked her, so what changed as a result? She said, well, some things I got better at, some things I didn't. But I learned to stop taking myself so seriously. Oh, so cool. Right? It's like that expression, attack life, it's going to kill you anyway. <laughs> that is so wonderful and so inspiring. Yeah. We do take things pretty seriously, don't we? Well, they say the number one 
regret that people have on their deathbeds is all the things they worried about, all the ways they held themselves back. You know, that's why I say there's always two people in the world, those who are truly alive and those who are just trying not to die. Oh, man. I love the quotes you say. Right? Yeah. So if you're truly alive, you're going to take risks. Every time I get on my motorcycle, it's a risk. I ride solo. I remember last year, I'm riding to Rock Creek, going along the wildlife corridor, and this big black bear is coming onto the road just as I pass him. And I looked into his eyes, and he looked into mine. We had this cosmic union for a moment. And I remember thinking, you are so cool, and I am so glad I wasn't a minute later, and you would have been on the road in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And coming through those tight turns going into a Soyuz, that was pretty terrifying at times because you're having to literally turn so tightly you can't even see where you're going. You can't look around the corner. Mm. You have to turn your chin where the bike needs to go. Oh, wow. You know? And I look at it this way. It's my path to ride. Yes, I wear all the gear. I don't get on a motorcycle without it. I even wear a hit vest. It's basically an airbag. If I get thrown off the bike, it inflates. I'm as geared up as I can be. But if I'm riding in some remote spot and something happens with my bike, then that's my path. And I have a friend, she's a young woman who's riding solo through Pakistan, all over the world. And she says, I never worry about dropping my bike because even if I've been riding for hours and nobody's around, if I drop my bike, somebody shows up to help me with it and I meet the nicest people. Hmm. Yeah. That's truly trusting your path. And most of us today, we don't trust our path because we've not been taught to recognize the world is not happening to us. It's generated from us. us. From us. From us, not for us. You're walking around in your own dream. That's what the movie The Matrix was about. Yeah. The Matrix, it's your own creation. So if something Mm. happens on some level, you created that. So we can either feel like victims, why did this happen to me? Or, wow. Why did I create that? What do I need to learn from that experience? What is it trying to teach me? What is the universe trying to teach me through the experiences I'm generating? I agreed to walk this path. I agreed to enter into this body and have these experiences. Now, what do I want to do with those experiences? Do I want to run away from them and fear them? Or do I want to go, I ordered this up for some reason. What's it trying to teach me? I remember one day I had two hours and three stores to go to. I was on a mission. I get to the first store, there's a newbie on the cash being trained. Everything slows down. Right. I get to the next store, cash machine breaks down just as I'm getting to it. The third store, another trainee on the cash. And at this point, I'm just looking up at the universe going, I understand, I'm not in charge, I never was in charge, I get it. Okay. It's amazing how when we surrender to what is, how much more energy we have to deal with what's going on. Mm. And I've had some very serious struggles in my life but if I'm willing just to feel what I feel it's amazing how much more smoothly I can move through it so if I need to cry I cry if I feel angry I feel angry I've had times where I will sit there for days with something brewing inside of me and I'm just observing it what is this about what is it attached to this powerful feeling what does it feel like in my body what is the quality of this feeling Mm. I'll contemplate it Really, our emotions are quite fascinating. I know it sounds like Spock right now. <laughs> 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 to, to just sit and observe. What's yeah. this, what is this actually 
feel like in my body as a physical sensation. What happens when you start to observe the feeling is you get out of the story in your head. Like, oh, mm-hmm. God, am I always going to feel this way? When is this going to be over? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what's going to happen to me because of what I did today? And here's another thing. Most of the time, our fear is trying to mitigate against risk. You know, I said this thing to this person today, what's going to happen as a result of that? Am I going to lose that job? Am I going to lose that friend? I see. That sort yes. of thing. It's so different when we just go, whatever the consequences, I accept. However that shows up, I will face it when I see it. Right? It's like, I'm trained in martial arts, Okinawan go to you. If you and I were sparring and you were throwing the punches and kicks, where do you think my arms would be? I'm not sure. Think about it for a minute. We're standing facing each other. Yes. You're going to start throwing punches and kicks. Where are my arms? Like up, trying to block. No. No. Because if my arms are up here and you kick, I'm not going to see that. Right? Oh. My arms are here. They're at my sides. You're open. I'm open, therefore I can see more. Soon as you so much as move a shoulder or a hip, I know, high block, low block, it's automatic. If we are not open, we don't perceive as much, we don't respond as effectively. When you are in anxiety and fear, you are closed off and you're not Mm. seeing things clearly. So when you're angry at somebody, sit with it, even if you have to sit with it for days. Don't, if you can help yourself, don't talk to somebody about it until you're centered. Because when you're centered, not only can you see how you feel, you can perceive what they actually meant, which is usually not what your filters will tell you. I'm sure. Oh, okay, so do you, um, do you write down any feelings or do you just sit with it? Do you, you, don't, do you, do you take um, any input? Do you listen to anything? Do you just... it, it depends. Most of the time at this point in my life, I sit with it because everything I need is inside of me. There are times I will get a reality check from somebody and say, this is how I'm perceiving this. Is there another way of looking at it? Mm. Because that's the beauty of the hive mind. When you're talking to other people, you get other viewpoints, it expands your own, right? And journaling can be good too. Mm. One good exercise is to sit with yourself and say, what's one word to describe how I'm feeling right now? Write it at the top of the page and then stream of consciousness whatever needs to come out after that just keep writing even if it looks like nonsense at first just keep writing whatever's inside of you that needs to come out gets to put it on the page no judgment you're not writing for anybody but yourself i love that very much um there's a i do actually have to go soon i realize i'm that's okay. I, I just talking. didn't want to cut you off if you had more questions. Yeah, well, I could, I'm sure I could ask you questions till you know, the day I die. Um, <laughs> um, well, I think there's just so much in there. I'm, I know I'm going to be going back through this with my notepad this time um, because I, I, I can think of like seven or eight different times where something happened inside of me. I'm sure it'll happen again when I go back through it. So, um, yeah, this was awesome. Thank you it's so much. It's my absolute pleasure, Brett. For you and for anybody that's listening, all of your listeners, I I just wish them everything they need on their path for them to wake up, become conscious, and fall back in love with themselves. Mm. And I'm so thrilled for you that you're doing Vipassana. It's uh, such a yeah. experience. It really is. Yeah, I'm so excited. You, I heard everyone cries on the third day. Um, 
I had ecstatic moments. I had moments where I cried. I had moments where I was bored. I had moments where my knees hurt. You get the whole of the human experience. Oh, and the awesome. whole point is just embrace all of it. Because yeah. all of it is worthwhile. That's awesome. Oh, my yeah. goodness. And remember that when you're bored, you're just getting to the good stuff. Because that's a lot of times where as soon as our mind wants to check out, it's because if we sit still a little longer, we may learn something. And so the ego goes, abort, abort. <laughs> yeah, don't show me, don't show my true colors. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so even if you're sitting there going, oh, this is, you know, why am I doing this? Just sit a little longer. In fact, one of the things I try to do when I meditate mm. is sit perfectly still until I can't stand it anymore. And then sit just a little bit longer. Mm. Get on the other side of that resistance because there's something juicy there. But don't get attached to an outcome. Don't get attached to result. One of the biggest mm. problems for people doing the spiritual work is getting attached to the pyrotechnics of your own mind. I had this mystical experience, and then the next time they meditate, where's my mystical experience? Right, yeah, I've done that before. Yeah, yeah. that's why Zazen is it translated as just sitting. Oh, okay. Just to be present with what is. It's just as valuable to be meditating and feel anger or grief or fear as it is to feel joy and bliss. Somebody once asked a master who'd meditated for many years, you know, what do you experience? And they're expecting him to go, emptiness and bliss. He goes, joy, fear, anger, lust, love, hatred, everything everybody feels. Uh, but he's just going, oh, I'm having an experience. Yeah. It's not attached to it being a particular kind of experience. Yeah. All of you, all of who you are is valuable on the journey. And let those parts show themselves however they do and say, hello, friend, welcome. I'm so glad you're here to all. Huge thank you to Benita Summers for taking the time to, to speak with me. It was an amazing conversation for myself. I had a couple deep realizations after this conversation. Her energy in the room was amazing too. So huge thank you to her. I really hope you got some value out of this as well. Because I know I did. And I, I really hope that some of that got through to you too. Anyways, thank you so much for watching. I appreciate your time and energy as always. And I'm really wishing you health, love, happiness all that good stuff and that you guys keep growing and connecting and learning uh because i don't know about you but i've been trying to do that a little bit lately and it is amazing when it starts to work out a little bit so i hope you guys are having some success in that area thanks guys again see you next time